you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be reading in just a moment from verse 6 through verse 16. The book of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And the book of Hebrews can say that precisely because the book of Hebrews has been at pains to make us know that Jesus Christ is no less than God. This past weekend, as we, we've been reading through in our community groups, the, the difficult book, uh, it hasn't really been difficult up to this point, but the last chapter was difficult in gospel deeps. Our community group hit on the difficulty of the Trinity and how the Trinity then interacts with the Christological nature of Jesus Christ and he is fully God and fully man and what that means for him to be omnipotent just as God is. And so how he can be omnipresent just as God is and how he can be omniscient so just as God is. In fact, his omnipresence suggests strongly that he is not even limited by time. To be truly omnipresent means to be present everywhere all the time. And that means not only is he present here with us now, not only is he present in the smallest of microbes, not only down to the minutest measurement of distance and scale, but he is fully present there and fully present over all of the earth. He is fully present with us here today. But to be truly present everywhere means that he must not just be present in this moment, but he must be present at all times. So God is not limited by space and God is not limited by time. He is fully here now. He was fully present in this location in 1985. He was fully present here in 1132. He was fully present here in AD 14. He is always present forevermore. And each of those moments are the same to him. They do not look different. They do not feel different. As we talk about these things, even as Jesus took on a body The Son of God became human flesh. He still maintains some of his omnipresence. That's kind of a weird statement. Let me do that again. I don't know how you retain some omnipresence. He retains all of his omnipresence. He is right then in our thinking that God is complex. As long as what we mean by complex is that God is deep, he is difficult to understand. Theologians say that God is simple. What they mean by that is not that he is easy to understand or that he is basic, like I'm a simple man. But what they mean is that he is all of one piece. You can't get rid of one of these characteristics of God and think that you can keep the rest. Either God is omnipresent or God is not God. Either God is omnipresent or he can't be all-powerful. Because if he's not there, he can't be all-powerful there. His omnipotence is tied to his omniscience, which is tied to his temporality, which is tied to his omnipresence, and every other characteristic of God. If you pull out one thing, everything else falls apart. And so in the end, what we end up with is the fact that God is, as theologians say, immutable. That doesn't mean we can't shut him up. It means that he is unchanging. He can't ever be different because he can't ever have a new experience. He can't ever learn He can't ever see something that he has never seen. There is nothing that comes to him that he doesn't already know or have experienced before. He is immutable in all things. He cannot change. So the book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This is why scripture more often than not refers to God as a rock. Because while we might think that rocks can be weathered and they can be strewn down and smoothed out, If you were to pick one thing on this earth that doesn't change over days and years and eons, 
It is a rock. God is that rock. He doesn't change. But we are not that way. We can do nothing but change. And from the moment we are conceived in the womb of our mother, we do nothing but change. We grow, we mature, we learn, we experience, we morph. We're always moving and changing in all things that we do. The atoms that are in your body are probably not even the atoms that were first in your body when you were younger. Not only are all of the atoms different, but you, anytime you experience something new, anytime you interact with somebody, you gain more information, you are different than what you were before. The very nature of a human being is to be in flux. It's to change. And if we are to change, and we must, at least to something that is very uncomfortable for us. That is simply the idea that past experiences cannot determine future faithfulness. What you've done in the past does not indicate at all that you will maintain faithfulness going into the future. No confession, no amount of recognition by other people will be able to maintain the fact that you will go into the future faithful to the Lord and faithful to the confession that you've made. We can think of many of us, I'm sure, somebody who was faithful for a good deal of time in their lives, who seemed at time as much of a rock as God was. And they've walked in faithfulness for so long, for years or decades, only to find that in the end they've fallen away from the faith once and for all handed to the saints. They did not maintain their faith. We can think of people, even as celebrities, who have done so in the past two weeks. Joshua Harris, who 20-some years ago wrote a very famous book. Marty Sampson, who has written many well-known songs for Hillsong, both publicly within the past couple of weeks have announced that they are either crumbling in their faith or have already crumbled and are past it. Paul has already walked us through elder qualifications, but realize what elder qualifications are. They are by necessity because you and I both lack the ability to see into the future always backward-looking. They're always these are characteristics not that they will have, but characteristics that they have already displayed. The question that comes then is how can we maintain our faith in the world with these qualifications? How can elders do it? But given that these elder qualifications are exactly the same things that you ought to be striving for anyways, with the minor exception of teaching, you ought to want to be all of the things that they have already laid out, in, in, whether it's for elders or deacons in 1 Timothy 3. How can you maintain your faith walking forward? What is that you can do to help you? I think that we have an indication of that today. Here in 1 Timothy, we are told how to maintain and to become what you ought to become. This holds great promise for you, friend. We are all fickle, wavering, and waffling as we walk through life. None of us is secure in what we do. To keep you from falling away from the faith, what can you do? Let us read 1 Timothy 4 beginning in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy, and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, 
in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift which you have, which was given to you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the inerrant and infallible work, word of God. As we think through what it means for us to maintain our faith and to maintain our trust in God and what we can do, humanly speaking, to work at this, I want you first to make work your favorite. Make work your favorite. That is a quote from one of my all-time favorite movies, Elf, which Elf, who is a, uh, an elf who has come down from the North Pole, and he smiles incessantly, and the guy who is his boss over him asks him, what is he doing? He says, I'm smiling, smiling is my favorite, and he looks at him, he says, no, work is your favorite. Make work your favorite. I, I don't know why I find it funny, but I quote it to my kids all the time. Make work your favorite. Work is your favorite. So friends, you are to make work your favorite. Work first in humility. There is a great deal of humility in what Paul is telling Timothy here. Paul can talk of Timothy like he has no one like him. Of all the people that Paul has met, Timothy is the gold standard for somebody who stands faithful and is helpful as he writes to the book of Philippians. There is no one like Timothy. And yet here he can write to Timothy and make it very clear to Timothy that Timothy hasn't run the race yet. He's not done yet. There is more work to do. Timothy has to continue to press on and cannot for a second think that he has arrived, that he has achieved all the godliness that he needs, that he has achieved everything that is spoken of him and everything that he is supposed to do. At no time is Timothy ever to sit back on his laurels and assume that he has made it. Yes, and it takes a good deal of humility to say this to somebody else because no doubt Timothy is sitting there hearing this and thinking in his worst moments, Paul, you as well. And Paul does the same. He works hard at what he is doing. And he works hard because he understands that he has to be humble before God, that he hasn't reached it yet. Friend, do not think that you're above waking up one day and finding that your faith is gone. If you think that you have arrived, that you are complete the way you are, there will be a day when you wake up and you find everything in your world smashed. You will find that you have drifted. Human beings are made to change. You will never stay who you are. You are either progressing or you are regressing, but you are moving in a direction. And if you simply think that you are there and that you've arrived and you can just take it easy from now on, friend, you are going to be massively, massively disappointed. In humility, you must press into Christ that he might keep you. And in humility, you must admit that in your own strength, you would certainly fail. But not only that, there's great humility in clinging to what has already been passed down to Timothy. Paul looks at him and he says, listen, you were trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. This was your training. That word is related to all of the physical stuff that's coming up and all the physical training that's coming up, but it's also related to how parents lead their children. You were trained up this way. Since the time you were a young man, when you walked around with me and you, you went on those trips with me and you saw the work of God, we trained you in godliness. We trained you in right words. We trained you in good doctrine. He looks at Timothy and he says, there is no reason for you to be an innovator. We don't need innovators. We need faithful people. And there's nothing wrong with progress. Progress in certain respects is excellent and good and more than that, necessary. 
but it's only progress toward the word of God. It's never progress away from it. Let scripture stand above tradition, but let tradition stand above everything else. There's a reason why we have to learn from the men who have come before us. There's a reason why when we open the Bible, we're not reinventing all of it over and over again. God has allowed 2,000 years to pass so that you wouldn't have to. Don't neglect the great gift of tradition for you. We do think that scripture stands alone, finally, in the end, that this is what determines whether tradition is right or not. But don't let experience and don't let progress trump all of the rest of it. Many of the people who want to be innovative theologically are those who are not humble enough to stand on what has already been passed down. They think they know better. They think that they are more clever. They think that they have figured out something that Paul or that God himself didn't know. Be humble. If it's the word of God, stand on the word of God. Those irreverent, silly myths are the theological innovations of their time. And they're worthless. And they're not helpful. And they destroy lives. Timothy is to be humble. He is to stay near what he has been taught and realize that he is not above falling away. But he is also to work at godliness. He is to work in humility, but he is to work in godliness as well. This is what Paul says. He says, you are to train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Godliness is exactly what it sounds like. It's being like God. And there are certain ways that you can't be like God. We've talked about the fact that God is immutable, that he doesn't change. You're only going to change, friend. What I'm saying to you right now is changing you, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. What you experience in life changes you. You can't not change. Change is always going to be present for you. That is an attribute of God that you can't have. What theologians call that is an incommunicable attribute. And all that means is God can't communicate it to you. For you to be immutable means that you are God. Just like he can't communicate to you, he can't give to you omnipresence. He can't give to you omniscience. He can't give to you the ability to know everything, the ability to be everywhere. God cannot give that to you. He cannot communicate that to you. But there are a whole bunch of really awesome attributes that God can communicate to you. Nicely wrapped up in the idea of being holy. Strive for holiness. Train yourselves in godliness or holiness. Same kind of general idea. You can be loving, you can be holy, you can be righteous, you can be just, and you can be ever increasing in those things and become ever more like God on high. So when Paul calls on Timothy to be trained in godliness, this is what he wants him to press for. Press for these things that you know God is like, that you can grow in. Become more like God, however you can. The image that he provides for him here, the picture that he provides for him here, is one of hard physical labor, made and done to make your body do the things that it can't now do. So you aren't as just as you ought to be. You aren't as righteous as you ought to be. You're not as loving and filled with peace as you ought to be. So friend, work on it. Labor at it. Because the same reason that people work on their bodies to make them into what they weren't before so that they can do things that they couldn't before is the same reason why you are to work hard on godliness so that you might become what you weren't, but what you were always called to be. Paul says that this sort of physical training is of some value. We know this. We know. There are studies. Science has told us, therefore it must be true. There are a million reasons why people pursue diets and exercise. Most of them are just superficial. They want to look better. But there are millions more why you ought to seek physical fitness. 
Ironically, expending energy in good doses actually increases your energy. It makes you stronger. It makes you feel better. It decreases appetite. You get better mental focus. You're strengthening your immune system. In the end, it lengthens your life and makes the quality of your life better. There are numerous reasons why you ought to work hard at keeping yourself physically fit. These are all good things, but they are all of limited value. They are good for this life, but they are not ultimate, and they certainly aren't guaranteed. Just this past Wednesday, we had Alec sharing his testimony. For those of you who don't know Alec, Alec isn't here today. He's down at seminary. Alec's a big guy. During his high school career, he was looked at by numerous colleges, and he thought in his mind he had a chance at the pros. He's a big guy, and he worked hard on his body. He worked hard to make it what it needed to be so that he could achieve those goals. Now, one day his hamstring split. One day his shoulder goes. It's of good value, but it's not of ultimate value. It's not even guaranteed, no matter how hard you work at it. All the more, then, Paul says, work on godliness, because it's not just good for the here, but for the hereafter. And indeed, godliness is good for the here. You realize how, how much patience would help us? Just one thing, patience. Do you know how much frustration and aggravation and anger in your life would be removed in an instant if you had the patience of God? If you were long-suffering and able to wait for God to work? Think of the person who sits at the light in front of you, right? Think of how little aggravation you would have as, as they're scrolling through Facebook while that light is green, and you know you're not going to make that left-hand turn now if you were okay with it, okay? Patience is a virtue, and it's not just a virtue because we want it to be a virtue. It's a virtue because it's good for you. It has good things here in life for you. Not only that, but being kinder and more peaceful. As Pastor Richard read from later in the book of Timothy, godliness comes with contentment. True godliness comes with contentment. You're okay with the situation you find yourself in. You can be joyous in suffering because you know what Christ has done for you and you know what's coming for you. You can be content in all situations because Jesus Christ strengthens you for that contentment. The working on godliness has incredibly good things for you here. It also holds future promise. It provides for you with help. And frankly, I think given the context which we'll come to at the end, it will keep you from falling away. It draws you close to Christ. The picture here is that those who pursue God are rewarded with greater knowledge of God. They're rewarded both here and in heaven. They know God better here, and so they're drawn closer to God here, and they're less likely to fall away here. And they're drawn closer to God so that in heaven they are given a greater reward. It has better things for you. Strain yourself for godliness. But let's be clear. This isn't a walk in the park. The picture that Paul provides here is important, and it is difficult. When Paul calls for us to persist in pursuing godliness, the analogy he picks up on is work. That you were to work at it. Why don't we work harder at being physically fit? Because it's horrible. That's why. It is the worst. Exercising isn't fun. If you were to, listen, it has, the, the problem with exercise, especially if you haven't done it in a long time, is it has very little positive outcome for you. Okay? So if you, have, if you haven't run in years and you say, I'm going to go, I'm going to knock out two miles, that two miles is going to do you absolutely no good. 
Okay, you're going to get to the end of it and you're going to feel horrible. The only good it's going to do is at the end of one mile, you will pray harder than you've ever prayed in your life that the Lord Jesus would come so that you don't have to finish that next mile. That's about the only good that's going to come from it for you. Because when you get done, you're going to be tired. When you wake up the next morning, you're going to be sore. All of the negatives are there immediately. All of the positives take a long time to accrue. But the point is that they do accrue. When you keep at it, you run the next day or you lift in a couple of days, and you keep doing it, you keep working at it, you keep working at it, you find that the positives start to outweigh the negatives. The negatives aren't there as much anymore. You feel healthier, you feel more energetic. The problem is that because we see the immediate negative outcome, we oftentimes cancel it all together. Listen, friend, you can go home and you can read your Bible cover to cover. You know what good that's going to do you tomorrow? Very little. You can go home and you can read a section of text and devote yourself to it, and it might do you good, and you might get nothing out of it. That's not what Paul's upholding for you. He's not upholding for you magic rewards. What he's holding up for you is a lifelong dedication to this will always be for your good. Go read your Bible. Read it daily. Read it yearly. Read it over decades. Read it and soak it in, and you will find that the positives are always going to outweigh the negatives. No matter what you have to push aside, whether it's sleep, whether it's relationships, no matter what it is that you have to push aside and say, this is more important, it will accrue benefits for you. Continue to work at it. Read scripture. Pray as you ought to pray. Seek the fellowship of saints. Pray for them. Do the hard work of loving people. These will accrue benefits for you here and hereafter. But this raises, I think, two questions. First, why all the hard work? I mean, we don't like hard work. And after all, we just got done singing grace, grace, marvelous grace. And grace is something that you can't do. Isn't it supposed to be given to us? Isn't this the whole beauty of Christianity? I mean, we're talking about the gospel, which is good news, that Jesus came to save sinners, that, that we owed a debt, we couldn't pay it, we couldn't work it off, and Christ did that for us. So why are we now talking about work? Why am I saying work is your favorite? Why shouldn't I say belief is your favorite, or trust is your favorite, or, or Jesus is, his work was his favorite, it doesn't need to be your favorite. Why, why are we talking the way we're talking? Isn't this, isn't this wrong to focus so much on work? We can't make ourselves holy, can we? The answer to that is, of course, no. But neither can we just think that sanctification and godliness are going to happen because we sit back and we say nice little platitudes like let go and let God. I'm not altogether against platitudes, but I am pretty much altogether against that one. At no point in time does Paul ever take the attitude that he is going to let go and let God. Rather, what does he point Timothy to? It's not just that I'm picking up on something in the metaphor that insists that what he's calling for is hard work. Paul flat out says it. For to this end, we toil and strive. I don't know English all that well, but toiling and striving sounds a lot like work. And Paul says you've got to work hard at it. You've got to. Christianity does not ever sit back on its laurels and allow things to simply happen. We are to work hard at what Christ has given us. Listen to how Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15. So this isn't isolated at all. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about how the Lord has appeared to 500 people to Cephas, and then he appeared to Paul. Paul says, I was the least of the apostles. I didn't even deserve to be called an apostle. But then he says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. 
We think that's what I'm talking about. There's no work there. Paul didn't earn it. Paul just got done. A couple of verses telling us how little he is worth it, how little he is still worth it, and yet God gave it to him. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I haven't made myself that. So Paul is all about grace, and he's all about God working in your life. But then he turns around and says, the grace of God wasn't in vain. Well, how was it not in vain? On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. You think the apostles worked hard? Friend, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. In other words, Paul has the grace of God so intermingled in his own life that it's hard for him to tell where his work stops and the grace of God begins. Hard work is necessary to make sure that the grace of God has not been in vain toward you. Listen to how he talks. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder. People who think that they have received the grace of God and then sit back and don't work hard are people who are wasting the grace of God. Friends, don't don't allow this to happen. Work for your sanctification. Work for your godliness. It doesn't mean that you're earning salvation. It means that you're trying and seeking to make that salvation as real as it possibly can. This is the goal to which you were saved, to be like Christ. Strive to be like him. Don't allow the grace of God to be in vain. So first, let's talk about how hard the work is. But secondly, we want to know, is this actually going to pay off? I mean, we talked about Alec just a second ago, and it seems wrong. He's been here all summer, and now I'm picking on him now that he's gone. He's a big boy in almost every respect, so we're just going to let that go. But nevertheless, he worked hard, right? Physically worked hard. And he didn't make it to the NFL. The, the hard work that he put in didn't pay off the way he wanted it to pay off. What kind of assurance do we have that our hard work is going to pay off? After all, friend, if, if there's no purpose in working hard, then you're not going to do it. If there's no reward for working hard, you're not going to do it. If I went to the doctor's tomorrow and the doctor looked at me and says, you got stage 12 cancer. I didn't even know it went up to stage 12 until I looked it up just now. This is the first case. It's crazy. You know what I'm going to do? He's like, you got, you got three hours. I'm going to kiss my wife. I'm going to kiss my kids. And I'm going to Cops and Donuts and I'm eating as much as I possibly can. Because it just doesn't matter anymore, right? I'm dying, okay? If there is no benefit to working hard at being physically fit, then you wouldn't do it. The same thing goes for godliness, if there's no purpose, if there's no gain in godliness, if you can't be assured of it, then why do it? Paul says this, we strive, we toil for this end. This is the saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God. That same God is who is immutable, who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing. He is the one who wants you to be more like him. He is the one who has sent his son that you might be remade in his image. And because he is all these things, you've set your hope on a living God who's not dead, he's not stone, he's not wood, he helps, he aids. And because he is that great of a God, you can be assured that all of your work here will not be in vain, that his grace will work in you, that you will mature in your life. This is exactly what Paul means when he says that God is the Savior of everyone. It doesn't mean that salvation has come to everyone. That word Savior oftentimes does mean that, and clearly it does in one sense because he says at the end, especially of those who believe. But Paul isn't a universalist. He has no doubt that there are people who are going to go to hell and who God hasn't saved. But that word Savior can mean one who brings salvation. It can also mean one who is incredibly kind and beneficent. 
He brings help and aid to people. Have you looked around? You realize that 130 years ago, indoor plumbing was like a novelty? We can talk to people halfway across the world by looking at them. We can travel to the moon. We, we can look up almost any fact that we could care to do by pushing a button and speaking into a device. This is all due to the fact that God, God is kind. We've eliminated diseases that used to ravage populations. We have medicines now that can heal people who almost ultimately always would have died throughout the history of, of humanity. And we can do it because God is kind. He's a helper. He's a helper to everyone. But God says, Paul says here, especially, especially those who believe. We have so many good things. So many good things that the kindness of God has brought us. So many good things that God has helped us with. And Paul looks at that and he says, but he helps you especially. Think of all the help that God has given to humanity over the past 150 years, all of the good things that he has brought to it. And Paul looks at you and he says, yeah, all that, but he helps you especially. Friend, work, work, because God will help you. He will guide you. He will direct you. He will make your, your efforts worth it. You can trust that he will do this. So prepare for the future. Work for your godliness. Make work your favorite. For God stands, is willing and able to help you with it. So first, make work your favorite. But second, make work your fame. Make work your fame. You can kind of look at these first verses as though they're private. These are things that happen inside. The second set of verses from 11 to 16 are quite clearly out in the open. These are things that everybody sees. These are things that everybody notices. Timothy must actively use these things and, what's more, demand them out of others. This isn't just a word for Timothy. It's not just a word for him to make sure that his life is right. Paul says, this is not just good news for you. This is good news for all people. Make sure that everyone knows of it. Make work your fame in performing these things as an example. He says, you are to command and teach these things, but let no one despise you for your youth. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people who are young, and especially people who are young, tasked with teaching other people who are young, kind of cling on to this. But they cling on to it in this weird way. Like, when people seem to be upset with something they did, they're like, hey, you're not supposed to, you know, despise me for my youth. But notice how it's not on the people who are despising that Paul turns his attention He doesn't say, let no one despise you for your youth, for they are all bitter, angry, old people. Okay? Some of them are. Not all of them. But he turns his attention directly to Timothy. And he says, let no one despise you for your youth. The things that people despise in youth, the things that Christians might despise in youth, are that they don't know how to speak well. They let their lips do talking before their brain can cut them off. Their conduct isn't all that it should be. They do not know how to love rightly. Their faith is often weak, and certainly purity is an issue for many young people. And so Paul is saying not keep them quiet when they want to despise you. He's saying, Timothy, you give them absolutely no reason to despise you. Don't allow them to despise you. You should live your life in such a way that they can find no fault with you whether it's because you're young or not. And so what these things are, are things that young people are tempted towards. And Paul is saying, you can't be tempted toward these anymore. 
So many times we give young people the benefit of the doubt. We say, well, I, I did stupid things when I was 18 as well. Yeah, I, I did too. Timothy can't use that as an excuse anymore. Paul's saying that is not an excuse for you. Your youth, that's not, that's not going to fly anymore, Timothy. Let no one despise you because you're young. Instead, set for them an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Friend, don't be the person that people make excuses for. Well, it's just because they're young. Well, it's just because they've been put in a bad circumstance. Well, I can understand that. No, sometimes that's all right and true. People do come from hard backgrounds that you might not come from, and therefore they might struggle with something that other people don't. But their goal is the same as your goal, to not have that in their life. So work hard at eliminating it so that you might be a good example to all who are around you. Make work your fame, not by talking it up either, but simply in its being done. Let the good itself do its talking for you. What we're doing here is saying not that you are to do good things and proclaim it loudly. If you want to do that, that's fine. I would refer you back to the Sermon on the Mount to show you that that is all worthless. If you do a good thing, you don't need to proclaim it from the mountaintops because there will be a day, one day, when God will do that for you. You don't need to proclaim it on Facebook. You don't need to proclaim it to your neighbors. You don't need to talk about it to the people that you love the most. Be quiet, do your work, and your work will be known. Make work your fame in performing them as an example, and then simply make work your fame by performing the gifts that God has given to you. Paul wants Timothy to exhort, to read, and to teach. This might not be your calling. It was Timothy's. Timothy was gifted, apparently, not only by prophecy, but by the laying on of hands. Something incredibly special was done over Timothy. As God sent a messenger to somebody to say that this Timothy is going to be gifted in preaching and teaching and exhorting, and then the elders confirm that by laying hands on him, Paul is making a very special case here. But he's making a very special case that you are to use the gifts that God has given to you, Timothy. It's unlikely that any of you have had an experience like that. But you've had a better one. Because you didn't need prophecy that needed to be tested to see if it is true. But you have the more sure word of God. And you didn't have the laying out of hands by elders to give you your gift. You have the very incoming of the Holy Spirit to give you your gifts. Paul says that as the Spirit brings us together in a body of believers, each one of you has been given a gift. And you might not think you've got it. You might not know what it is. But he says you have been given a gift so that you can help mature, support, grow up all the people around you so that you can love them and care for them and do all the things that God has called us to do as a body of believers that is done because God has given you gifts. So use your gifts. Use your gift to ease burdens. Use your gifts to show grace. Use your gift to teach, to encourage, to lead, to serve, to pray. Paul knows that Timothy has this gift and he's begging him to not let it go to waste. Friends, you have been gifted by God. Don't let that gift go to waste. You might think, well, how do I know? Well, there's tons of online tests I can tell you. And you can imagine how good online man-made tests are at telling you what the Spirit of God is doing in you personally. Let me give you a much easier way. Do what Scripture's called you to do. Find out that which you do the best and pursue it. If you serve, great. Serve with all your heart. If you're good at teaching, friend, you find areas to teach in. If you are wonderful at counseling people, find people to counsel. If, if you feel like, 
like simply coming alongside and showing compassion to people who are hurting as a gift that you've got, then do it. But find out what it is. We're all called to do all of these things anyway. So do them. Find out what you've been gifted with because you're good at it and then pursue it with all you've got. Work hard at it. Paul looks at Timothy and he says, listen, you are to practice these things. And then this wonderful expression, immerse yourself in them. Baptists love that. Immerse yourself in it, right? Let the bubbles come up before you bring them back out. Let, immerse yourself in it completely and totally, right? It is to be the air you breathe. It is to be the reality that surrounds you. You are working on these godly qualities. You are doing the things that God has given you to do, and you are pursuing them with all your might. He says, you are to do this, you are to immerse yourself in them, you are to breathe them in and to bathe in them so that everyone can see your progress. Again, I can't affirm enough how public this part of the entire text is. Everything else was done in private, but now the works you're doing should be in public and they should be in public and so straightforward, so easy to spot, so good that everyone looks at them and says, my goodness, have you seen him lately? all might see your progress. Not your progress over the night. Not your progress over a week. But your progress over years and years and years. So that they can look back and say, do you remember how he used to be? Can you imagine that he was like that? He is no longer like that. Friends, do people see your progress in the faith? Do they see your patience growing? Do they see your joy increasing? Do they see your holiness improving? Do they see your prayers being strengthened? And why not? If the answer to that is no, the question is why not? And I'm going to give you a hint. It is rarely the fault of the people around you. It is not because they're not observant. Maybe you aren't friendly enough. Maybe they don't know you well enough. If you are in the community of this church, that ought not be the case. There's ample, ample ways to get to know the people in this church, whether it's through community groups, prayer meetings, even coming to Sunday school on Sunday morning. There's ample reason for people to get to know you. It's not their fault. But perhaps it's simply that you're not growing. And the question becomes then, why are you not? Work and labor for it. The end result is, Paul says, notice how bold Paul is. If this wasn't in scripture, can you imagine somebody saying this from the pulpit? Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Does Paul mean that you can actually save yourself by doing this? Okay, that's a no. We're not, we're not a terribly responsive church, but I'll help you a little bit there. So no, no, it's not that Christ simply provides access to salvation that you need to go out and grasp and you need to work for and you need to achieve. But what he does mean is simply that this is the human side of the equation. That we as humans can't see all of the glory that's going on in heaven. We don't know all of the sovereignty of God that's going on in heaven. And so Paul can talk on both sides of things. He can look at God in heaven and say, listen, once God has you, there ain't any going back. He will keep you. He will hold you. You are secure and safe in your salvation. You will progress to the end. You will persevere to the end. But on the human side of things, from a human vantage point, from what we know and what we can see, Paul says, if you do these things, you can assure yourself that you will be saved. 
You're going to work it out. This is the very evidence that you have in your own life that God is indeed working in you. So yes, Jesus saves us and saves us completely. And yes, that is only by grace and you have done absolutely nothing to deserve an ounce of it. But let it also be known that grace ought to change us. It makes us want to pursue other things, not the things of the world, but the things of the Spirit. And so if we are saved, we should be the kind of people who pursue such things. In doing so, we simply demonstrate that the grace of God has done what the grace of God always said it was going to do. Make us into a holy nation, a people of his own possession. This is the main way, by the way, this is the main way the sovereignty of God keeps you close to him. We, we talk about God as though he works mystically outside of any normal activity at all. That's wrong. How does Christ hold you fast? We love to sing that song. That's a wonderful song. How does Christ hold us fast? He holds us fast by calling you to work. He holds us fast by empowering your work. He holds you fast by making effective your work so that in your work you see the need for a Savior, so that in your work you see the goodness of Christ, so that in your work you see the goal of your effort in the name and the person of Jesus Christ himself. He holds you fast by putting before you the need for you to work. So friend, if Christ has saved you, if grace has moved in you, if you have understood his calling in the gospel, don't give up. Strive and toil, both in public and in private, that all might see your progress. And by seeing it, they might strive for it themselves by your example. For in doing so, you can save both yourself and those who hear and see your testimony about God's grace. Friends, there are too many people in this world that take their future in Christ for granted. They hear a preacher say, once saved, always saved, and they think that they have nothing to fear, not God, not man, and that there is nothing more to do. There's no work. There's nothing that puts obligations or needs on them. But the Bible, while affirming that Christ's call is always pure, sure, and true, calls on us to make that calling clear. Christ has saved you by the spilling of his own blood. You didn't work for that. He did it before you were born. He did it knowing that you would sin against him. He did it knowing that that blood was to cleanse you from that sin and to make you new again. And that if you believed and trusted in him, he would do exactly that. Christ has done all of that. And it is all freely given to you. And he gave it to you freely so that you could turn around and work for it. Not for it, Work from it, work through it, work because of it. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship. After Christ has saved us, he makes us new again. He's, we are his handiwork. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. From before eternity began, God knew he was going to save you, and he made a whole list of things for you to do. That was his goal in saving you, was so that you would do these things. And Paul is very simply saying, so do them. Do them. That's why God saved you. Again, in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, talking about the greatness of Christ, one of the greatest Christological passages in the New Testament, directly afterward, he says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by the flesh of his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If. We love that first part. And Paul drops a huge if there. If indeed you continue in the faith. 
from God's perspective and from the perspective of eternity, you are elect before the foundations of the world. But from your humanly, humanly perspective, from everything that makes you what you are and your limited perspective, you've got to work. Do not rest, friends. Run the race, fight the good fight, strive and toil. Marty Sampson, who is one of the worship leaders for Hillsong, one of the men who recently fell away. He's, he's now recanted that he has actually fallen away, but his, his faith is clearly in, in tatters. This was the post that got so much attention. Marty wrote this. Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world, it's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fail? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved, yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's, it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of people help create change in their lives, not just one version of God. Got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living for my, my life for others. Now, Marty eventually went back and deleted that post, and he tried to explain that he has sought some answers. Anyone who wrote that in the first place has done very, very little to find answers. I, I, I can't tell you how many times Christians don't shut up about pastors who fail and how Christians are incredibly, incredibly careful to think through how they walk through science and the contradictions of the Bible. I can't even imagine being in a church where things like that aren't mentioned. I hope it is true that he actually sought out answers to these things. I hope it is true that he actually worked to get the answers and didn't just give up and say, well, it must not be for me. But I frankly have little faith that that is so. How, how important must his faith have been if he can say, I'm losing it and it's really no big deal. I'm at peace with the world. If you can, stop and pray for Marty. He needs your intercession. But friend, you must also see his example. He doesn't seem to have worked hard at understanding and pursuing his faith. He doesn't seem to have worked hard at getting the answers that he needed to get before his faith crumbled. He didn't think that doctrine mattered, or he was in a church that didn't think doctrine mattered. And by the time it was all crashing down around him, it was too late. So far as it depends on you, friends, do not let this be your end. Work for your faith. Stand in God's grace. Do this and see and show the very glory of God. Let us pray. Father, how wonderful you are to give us grace and such lavish grace at that. May be praised by the works of your people who are called according to your will and called for your purpose. Let your spirit lead us in this work. Give us determination, desire, and eliminate all doubt from our minds. For you are our hope our Savior, and our God. For the good of your people and the glory of your name, we pray these things. Amen.